0: I'm Jesse Thorne. Craig Finn is the frontman for the band The Hold Steady. When he was 12, he bought Let It Be. No, not the Beatles album. It was a punk album by The Replacements, and it contained what was soon to be Craig Finn's favorite song of all time.
1: Putting the needle down and, and, and hearing the first song, I Will Dare, is that... It was, you know, shambling and, and romantic and... I mean, the whole album stands out to me, just how drunken and obnoxious and belligerent they could be, but then just really vulnerable and sensitive, too.
0: It's Bullseye. This week on the show, Craig Finn of The Hold Steady talks about the unpredictable and emotional music of the punk band The Replacements and how one of their songs changed his life. Documentarian Errol Morris reveals why he won't play gotcha with his interview subjects.
2: To me, the name of the game is to discovering something about other people. How they imagine themselves, how they describe their own experiences.
0: No, I'm not going to lie to you. I mostly want to talk to him about a series of beer commercials he directed. I sometimes think...
2: My movies will be completely forgotten. But what will survive, ultimately, is my Miller High Life commercial.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I'll talk to the actor Benedict Cumberbatch. He's playing villains in two big upcoming blockbusters. I'll talk to him about putting his spin on one of pop culture's most ubiquitous heroes, Sherlock Holmes. All that and more coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by our favorite critics to recommend bits and pieces of culture that are worth your time. This week, we're joined by weblink maestro Jason Kotke from Kotke.org. Hey, Jason.
3: Hey, Jesse. How you doing?
0: I'm excited to talk about your all-time picks here for Internet. Um, first of all, this is the most amazing thing that the Internet has to offer as far as I'm concerned information on the topic of sending children through the mail (laughs) I couldn't even make it through saying it (laughs) how do you even find out about sending children through the mail Jason? Um,
3: I saw a a picture it's a photo from 1900 and it's a mail carrier posing uh, with a young boy in his in his delivery bag and it's from the Smithsonian it was on uh, Flickr Commons which is a program that Flickr has where uh, museums and other public institutions can upload their photo collections which is fantastic it's like there's stuff from smithsonian and nasa the national archives brooklyn museum all sorts of different stuff
0: okay so was sending children through the mail ever an actual thing
3: apparently so there were so the uh, post office introduced their parcel post service uh, in 1913 which is like basically you can send stuff that's bigger than a letter through the mail um, and this was a great thing for for people in in the u.s who are living in rural areas because they could get all sorts of stuff shipped to them for the first time um, like live animals and stuff like live animals that didn't need feeding in transit were fine to ship and so i think people thought like well you know if i can send like chickens through the mail. Like, why can't I send kids through the mail?
0: There's so many reasons. Well,
3: and uh, yeah, so according to the Smithsonian, there were a couple of kids that were sent by mail before the uh, the postmaster general put his foot down and, and stopped it.
0: Okay, let's talk about um, one of the great internet phenomena, which is arguing over a weird theoretical physics question. And your post about uh, Cecil Adams of the Straight Dope, the famous uh, question answering alternative newspaper column, trying to answer the question, an airplane taxis in one direction on a moving conveyor belt going the opposite direction at the same speed. Can the plane take off? Now, what did you learn when you delved, I'm sure, far too deep into this uh, question about something that will never happen? (laughs)
3: Uh, I learned that, uh, a lot of people think it will, will take off and that, uh, there are other people who will swear up and down. Even people who have, you know, who, who have, you know, physics degrees, science, knowledge, background, you know, they, they insist that the plane will not be able to take off.
0: Do you think this is a worthy Kickstarter project?
3: (laughs) Well, it's funny because Mythbusters, uh, a few years ago they aired a program on this this question. They had a truck pulling a you know a, a tarp basically that was I don't know it was a couple thousand feet long and then they had an ultralight take off. You know basically they had the truck pull the tarp one way and the ultralight was going the other
0: way. An ultralight that's like that's like a uh one of those super skinny airplanes.
3: Yeah, it's like a skin, it's like a one seater. It's an ultralight airplane. It's a very light airplane, I guess. You know, they had, they had the plane try to take off, which, of course,
0: it did. Wow. Physics is amazing, and so is the Internet. It is. Jason Kotke's uh, post about whether a plane can take off if it's going exactly the same speed forward as a conveyor belt that it's standing on top of is going backwards is on his website at Kotke.org, as well as his post about sending children through the mail. You can find links to both on our on the bullseye page on our site maximumfun.org Jason Kotke from Kotke.org, thanks for joining us
3: All right thank you Jesse
0: It's Bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne The Guinness Book of World Records says that Sherlock Holmes is the most represented fictional character in film and television history. More than six dozen men have plopped a deerstalker cap onto their heads, put a pipe between their teeth and stepped in front of a camera to solve some mysteries. But my guest, Benedict Cumberbatch, is more than just the latest to take part in a proud and tweedy tradition. His Holmes is a different breed. He's the star of Sherlock, the BBC One series that's captivated the UK with 10 million viewers an episode. It moves Holmes and Watson into the present day. No more deerstalker, no more tweed. The royal scandals involve Internet dominatrices, not opera singers, but Holmes' brilliant mind and impatience for everyone else on Earth besides Sherlock Holmes remain. Here's Cumberbatch as Holmes from the show's first series demonstrating his detective powers at a crime scene.
4: Victim is in her late thirties. Professional person going by her clothes and guessing something in the media, going by the frankly alarming shade of pink. Traveled from Cardiff today, intending to stay in London for one night. It's obvious from the size of a suitcase. Suitcase? Suitcase, yes. She's been married for at least ten years, but not happily. She's had a string of lovers, but none of them knew she was married. Oh, for God's sake. If you're just making this up... Her wedding ring. Ten years old at least. The rest of her jewelry has been regularly cleaned, but not her wedding ring. State of a marriage right there. The inside of the ring is shinier than the outside. That means it's regularly removed. The only polishing it gets is when she works it off her finger. It's not for work. Look at her nails. She doesn't work with her hands. So what, or rather, who does she remove her rings for? Clearly not one lover. She'd never sustain the fiction of being single over that amount of time. So more likely a string of them. Simple.
0: It's brilliant. Both seasons of Sherlock are available on DVD and now can be streamed online via Netflix and Amazon Instant. When he's not solving crimes, Cumberbatch has made time for roles in War Horse and Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, among others. And he has some high-profile film roles on the horizon. He'll voice Smaug the Dragon in an upcoming installment of The Hobbit films. And he'll be the bad guy, or as he puts it, or is allowed to put it, the not-so-good guy in the upcoming movie, Star Trek Into Darkness. Benedict Cumberbatch and I spoke last year. We started off talking about the Star Trek movie. It's stuff that didn't make the cut when we first ran this interview. Back then, the movie was a really long way from release. Benedict Cumberbatch, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Lovely to be on the show. Um, I had a friend who worked on the first Star Trek movie. Mm. Um, as I want to say, she was a, she was an apprentice assistant director. Assistant directors are the people on on a set who are sort of in charge of comings and goings, and and you know. Uh, She wasn't
4: called Rachel, was she?
0: No, she wasn't. Or isn't Um, even.
4: She probably doesn't needed to change her name just because she did that job.
0: (laughs) But the thing that I remember most from her telling me about that job Mm. was that they were shooting it on. They were shooting a significant portion of it on the studio lot, but they had constructed special secret tunnels uh, so that people in makeup, who as various aliens from Star Trek, couldn't be seen. Uh, because if someone saw that it was like a Klingon or a... Um,
4: They'd know what to expect.
0: Then they would know what kind of alien was in there. Yeah.
4: <laughs> they do a good job. I think they do a good job of building up expectation. I think, I think JJ and Bad Robot in general have got this fantastic niche in an otherwise overly saturated transparent market of, uh, look what's coming, it's coming, here it's coming, and by the time it's coming you're kind of bored already. You know, he creates Mystique and... And a different type of energy of expectation, which is quite rare in this modern age of you know over spoiling trailers and uh, lots more chocolates than you can possibly eat before your appetite needs them. And I think the anticipation is such that when you get what you get, especially when it's as high quality as, as his productions are, you have a real thrill because it's it's genuinely something you didn't know about. And um, no, I, I play along with the secrecy game. I think it's fantastic and. Uh, it, it's it's a good thing for the audience in the end, although all of us, including me, just want to see the film. I mean, of course, we're eager to. But until that happens, why talk or, or see pictures or have any other reasons to, to spoil what should be a treat?
0: I'll tell you what I need to hear uh, to get excited about this new Star Trek movie. What's that? Cumberbatch. Oh, you're sweet.
4: thank you very much well it's very it's it's an amazing family to join and i i I love the first film to death i mean i i I saw it sort of begrudgingly i've never been a massive star trek fan i only say begrudgingly because it's not something i'd necessarily rush out to see but i was so enthralled by it. i mean i was in tears in the first five minutes and laughing the next 10 and just it's a great roller coaster ride and i thought they all did And, and i got a real tingle of satisfaction at seeing them all come together and I kind of became a fan, really, of the series through that. And so when I got the call very late in the day um, by film casting standards, I was just, I was over the moon. I couldn't couldn't wait to try and help out.
0: Your parents uh, have been working actors for pretty much all of your life. Yes. Um, but neither of them has ever been a major star. Um so I imagine that you've you've gotten to see that, especially as a kid, you got to see sort of some of the fruits of what it's like to be a working actor, which is to say that, you know, when you've got a gig, especially in film or television, it pays well. It's a great job. Um, it's very fulfilling. Um, but also that, you know, someone else has to sign off on you working. And it has to happen, you know, every three months if you're working on film and television often. Um, and that I- if no one is casting you, then you are not working for money. Yeah. Um, and I-, I wonder what that was like for you as a kid. And, and if the idea of, of acting seemed cool and glamorous to you or it seemed like a bummer. Uh I-
4: both at times i think i mean a mixture and, and that's that's the way it is um it was a you know i, I didn't walk into this with any uh, need for a reality check or preconceptions as to it all being you know uh, a, a glittering ascendancy to uh, the stars it's just kind of really honestly about hard grind uh faith in the people you work with and hopefully the people that are trying to get you the work and um And some certain professional courtesy. And I know this sounds obvious. I often get criticised by fans for being obvious in interviews. But, you know, Sodit, if you've not been an actor before, you you need to hear this sometimes. And I I think um, Mum and Dad were wonderful at uh, giving me every opportunity to do anything but be an actor, to avoid the peripatetic nature, to be uh, completely beholden to your career rather than your lifestyle or your family choices or any other kind of form of shaping your life. You're one and sole um, aim was to be around and available for work and try and get it in order to pay the bills.
0: Um, I think that everyone who everyone who works as an actor um, realizes very quickly when they start auditioning for, especially screen work, um, that just the way they are in the world has a certain way that it reads to people on screen in half a second and that they will be cast based on that irrespective of their talent and you are so distinctive, like you're exceptionally handsome in a very unusual way. <laughs> and <laughs> You sound like my mom <laughs> But I mean g- genuinely, I that I, I, really I mean that absolutely sincerely. That that must have that must have driven your career in a in a way that you might not have expected when you're, you know, auditioning for theater roles yeah. and it has to do with your your ability and talent and you think you can transform yourself in a, you know in the way that you can when you're on stage for 3 hours but can't when you're on screen for 3 minutes
4: it's wonderful when people take risks with you and, and that's what i'm i'm about and i i i i've been lucky to um you know I, i'm i'm quite ready to accept the fact that if i shift from Um, the small screen to the big screen here in the way that it's been going that uh, you know people will there will be a few fluttering through the letterbox where they'll be driven slightly sociopathic highly intelligent bordering on Asperger's fast talking uh, cerebral characters to, 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 to cater to and I you know what I mean I'm I'm a small fish in a in a very big pond now so I I'm I'm happy to play to my strengths to begin with but I think like all of us we just need a bit of variety in our lives and I think audiences do too and um I just get a more of a kick I guess out of having a a, a sort of more uh diverse smorgasbord of choice
0: and and, and appearance and uh challenge with each role It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Benedict Cumberbatch. He plays bad guy John Harrison in the upcoming film Star Trek Into Darkness, and he voices the villainous dragon Smaug in an upcoming installment of The Hobbit trilogy. But his breakthrough role was that of a hero, Sherlock Holmes. The BBC One series Sherlock is a modern take on the most famous of all fictional detectives. Let's talk about Sherlock. Yeah. Um... Sherlock Holmes, depending on your definition of fictional character, hmm. I think that um, God, Jesus, and Santa Claus appear are in more films and television shows than Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> but... Funny um, Yeah, Sherlock Holmes has been in hundreds of films and television yeah. programs portrayed by dozens of actors. And when you audition for this role, you're running up against not just... You know basil rathbone or whatever but uh, this accumulation of, of cruft of hundreds of people yeah um and ideas of hundreds of people mm. how can you when you get the sides for an audition for a part like that how can you do anything that's not just a pastiche of your ideas of what this guy is how do you find something that's actual in that
4: that's a good question um. Well, what did I do? I I saw the strengths of their script. I saw what they were wanting to bring to life. Uh, but yeah, you're entering a pantheon of what 70 plus actors have already trodden in in in, in the footsteps of that role. I, but you can't. You just disassociate with all that. It's a little bit like going for any audition. You you walk into the room and you forget the fact that you've just left a waiting room with five other people who are equally, if not better, suited for the part than you and you think I'm the only person they're seeing today and that's all that matters is what happens now because you can't take on that baggage. You know, any any level of performance and craft in, in, in the performing arts is about being present in a moment. And I think while there are some massive technical uh, things to master with homes, feats of memory and line learning, which I always struggle with, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the physical technicalities of hitting a mark, speaking at that that pace and uh, the, the alacrity of his, his his movement and as well as his intellect. You know, all of that requires a certain amount of technical skill. But you, you still, the best takes, the ones that work are the ones where you that just happens and it's there and it's a given and something fresh occurs. Christ, I mean, we had a bit of a blank canvas with this one. It's 21st century after all. And while M- M- Holmes is a modern man and was, you know, up to his eyeballs in cutting-edge um, science and um, the burgeoning technology of... of you know, criminal pathology in, in his original state, you know.
0: He's always pouring one beaker into another beaker. Well, you know,
4: there's a bit of that going on, exactly. But, you know, my point is that, you know, there's, you know, he he's somebody who there's a lot to draw parallels with in modern life um, from the original as there is obviously having him in modern life there's a lot that I can use that's modern that's going to make it feel as if it is a fresh take on Holmes and also I think what they thought I'd lend to it which is true because of the way I look and I have a high neck and you know, I've done stuff in period costumes before. Is is that you know I I've got a slightly old world, um, old soul, otherworldly quality, um, which sort of marries that that junction between someone who is Victorian, who we are honoring as a Victorian hero, even though he's playing with an iPhone and surfing the net and you know um, performing a million um, uh, sort of social and modern media functions in a, in the blink of an eye. I. I I guess that was it, really. I guess that was it. It was just going in with confidence, the confidence that that character required and the script and the updating of it required.
0: After a break, more with the actor Benedict Cumberbatch from PBS Masterpieces Sherlock. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Have a favorite Bullseye segment? It's easy to share it with your friends. You can find links to our page on SoundCloud at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Benedict Cumberbatch. He plays bad guy John Harrison in the upcoming film Star Trek Into Darkness, and he voices the villainous dragon Smaug in an upcoming installment of The Hobbit trilogy. But his breakthrough role was that of a hero, Sherlock Holmes. The BBC One series Sherlock is a modern take on the most famous of all fictional detectives. Benedict Cumberbatch and I spoke last year. In this clip from the series' first episode... Sherlock Holmes impresses his new companion, Doctor John Watson, played by Martin Freeman, by telling him everything he's picked up about him in the short time since they've met.
4: When I met you for the first time yesterday, I said Afghanistan or Iraq. You looked surprised. Yes, how did you know? I didn't know. I saw your haircut, the way you hold yourself, says military. Your conversation as you entered the room. They're different from my day. Said trained at bar. So army doctor, obvious. Your face is (laughs) tanned. but no tan above the wrists. You've been abroad, but not sunbathing. Your lips are really bad when you walk, but you don't ask for a chairman. You stand like you've forgotten about it. So it's at least partly psychosomatic. That says the original circumstances of the injury were traumatic. Wounded in action, then. Wounded in action,
0: Santan, Afghanistan, or Iraq. One of the things that I found the most compelling about the relationship between Watson and Holmes um, is. That uh, Wa- uh, that Watson, as as portrayed by Martin Freeman, is a, a veteran. He's an army doctor, as in yes. the stories. Yeah, and he's um, struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, or post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah, and um, you know, PTSD is something that can it, it, it can cause tremendous difficulties in relating to others that's one of the greatest um challenges that people with PTSD suffer from and um you know i it's it's you know it's very vivid for me because i grew up i grew up in a family with a father who was disabled by service related PTSD and um you know watching these two characters who each in their own way is struggling to find are, are struggling to find a way to relate to each other and mm. to the world mm. um is it's kind of is moving a- isn't it i mean it's it's
4: kind of moving and it's uh, in a way you know jokes aside about what the sexuality or implied sexuality of either of them i mean christ john's a ladies man and he's asexual until he meets irene adler and then something switches on in him, which he thought he had control over but i i i i agree with i think what you you were pointing out which is that they are two men trying to find a context in society and both have uh one through something imposed i guess by the trauma of being in in the theater of war and the other self-imposed have these um elements that make them both outsiders so they find a community with each other and a source of strength from each other and that's that's very touching to me and I think you know I I spoke to a lot of um, people well two two or three people particularly at, um, at, at an awards ceremony GQ Awards this year who were so grateful to Martin's performance and portrayal of Watson because you know while it's great fun and it's distracting and it's good fun telly for them to watch they felt that something was being represented now of course with his character it's not it's not a disability through an IED. It's not a. It's not a trauma that's marked him physically. He has a sort of socio, uh, sociopathic, a so psychosomatic associated wound, uh, which you know Sherlock gets very, very early on, um, as not being to do with his leg, but something else. Uh, what his problem is is that he, in a sort of Travis Bickle vein, I guess, can't reassimilate with society because he actually misses the thrill of the theatre of war, and that's a very dark and awkward and difficult. Um, thing to confess to which i guess is why it's sort of surfaces as nightmares and and the limp because you're 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 suppressing a desire to go back into combat for the thr- the thrill of being that adrenalized by knowing your life is uh held in the balance by a, a thread and you know and your colleagues around you and your your entire situation is constantly insecure i mean that's quite something to admit to actually enjoying and I think it's sort of shameful in a way to some people. Um, but you know, it's born out of service and dignity and honor and, and being a good soldier, which are all qualities that should, should be anything but shameful. Uh,
0: I want to ask you a, a, a sort of a personal question. Sure. Um, and you can, you, you can answer this to the extent that you feel comfortable. Sure. Um, uh, Quite a, quite a while ago, you were uh, you were carjacked and abducted yeah. in um, in South Africa while shooting a, a entirely different project. This was yeah, in two thousand four, right. I believe. Yeah. Um. And you know the the trauma associated with that, I can only I can only presume must have been tremendous. Um, and I wonder how, how going through that experience affected your life. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, it, it,
4: there's one minute where I can empathise with, with Sherlock's impatience. I think it made me for a while, that was the hardest thing for anyone around me to deal with, was that I, I yearned for a life less ordinary with every second I had to breathe because I came face to face with some very plain facts. One is that you die on your own. No matter who you're with or who you're leaving behind, you have to face death on your own. And also the fact that I was too young to die... Uh, made me uh, angry to live if that makes any kind of a sense so I I I had a sort of profound insight really and a fantastic dinner party anecdote at the hands of these people who you know it could have been a lot worse I could have been left with scars physical and and emotionally that, that could have been a lot worse I wasn't um, I wasn't beaten up. I was pushed around a bit but and tied up and put in the boot of a car as well as the side of the road. But, and I had a gun put to my head. But I wasn't pistol whipped. I wasn't beaten with a stick. I wasn't kicked. I wasn't raped. I wasn't uh, cut. You know, there was an awful lot that didn't happen that I can be thankful for. Because ultimately it was a small event in a very big country. And the next day there was a newspaper headline to give perspective and immediately rationalize what had happened to us. And and, uh, you know, give a context for how uh, this is something to be uh, got over rather than be traumatized by. Um, it, it was it was a very, very big event in my life, but um, it's one that I've learned from rather than being traumatized from. I went to see a counselor the minute after it happened. We had that on offer, and one of the actors I was with didn't, and the other actress did. And I think it was harder for them, um, and I'm not going to speak for them on, on, on this program, but... Um, I think, you know, the main way it changed me was it made me. I, I in the immediate um, aftermath, was that I, um, well, I was, I cried the first time I felt the sun on my face the next day. Uh, uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, sort of almost born again, resurrected feelings, this thing of the preciousness and wonderful and beauty uh, that is life. I mean, it's just such a blessing. And I know it sounds a bit soppy, but when you've, Come near death, you you really 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 learn to reevaluate it and appreciate it, and that's a great thing to get in your twenties because you start, you know, using your 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 vivacity not to, to to kick against the idea of oh I'm I'm immortal, there's no such thing as mortality, but to embrace your your mortality and uh, take control of it. So I went off and skydive, and I swam with sharks, and I did lots of kind of crazy adrenaline-fueled stuff. But I also travelled on my own for a month afterwards around Namibia and Cape Town. And sat in it, sat in my feelings, pondered it, dwelled on it, moved around in it, dismissed it, came back to it. You know, it's always there. And I, I'm fine talking about it. It's, it's a f-ing exhausting anecdote. Um, I, I'm not going to excuse my swearing there because it's, it's a really big story to go into.
0: Seems reasonable.
4: Uh, it is. In this instance, I think you can bleep me out on that, and I think people might understand. It's, it's a big, it's a big story, and and it's a wonderful one to tell. But I do kind of uh, feel a bit pale and worn after going through it, but. It's not something. I don't know. I've, I, you know, it, it, I've had near-death experiences since then, and, and that's obviously been the most acute one. I should say, um, I would say rather. Um, but I, I've got nothing th- other than good out of it, really. I think the the positive drive you get out of wanting to live a life less ordinary has borne fruit. I think um, I, you know, I quelled the other things in me that that sort of not my equilibrium or calm about a bit. I've kind of dealt with a lot of those. Um yeah. So I mean it kind of it happened not for a reason, because I don't think these things do. It just I was in that place at that time. Um but it was an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And it's it, it's definitely shaped part of who I am.
0: Were you able to find a way to um to find e- equilibrium again i mean yeah to, to i mean get i had ba- the job for a start you, so i, I had mean, to
4: focus on a very different reality instead of circumstances to my own and that was a massive as it is in an actor's life it's a massive headspace to occupy um and then to settle the equilibrium yeah it took time of course it took time um and you know i struggled with it and with the other two actors and you know, you go through well, I don't know that you in general go through one goes through in general, but I certainly went through the thing of, um, wow, I need inoculating, I need to just be knocked out, I'll, you know, um drink a lot of whiskey and take a sleeping pill. Uh then I got ill because I came off the sleeping pill and then that day passed and then I was completely fine again. That was I, I, I had a very sort of accelerated experience on the night and a very accelerated recovery. And I went to see the counselor twice. The second time he says, You're you're more than fine. You are you're a strong man you 're going to be good, and uh, I believed him, and he 's right <laughs> thank god um but you know yeah of course it's it's it, it throws you, but it takes you a while to i mean extraordinary things happen on that, and i don 't know how much detail you 've read about it, but one of the things that happened was as we found our salvation in this roadside curio shop that was run off the back of this uh, other drive through um safari park where all these cooperatives have been making woven baskets and fantastic beautiful 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 original artifacts carvings and um, bowls made out of wires and recycled beads and just extraordinary objects and it was run by about three or four women who were in this hut and there was there were two or three men standing guard because it was a roadside truck stop for the night so people would come and you know Get some Coca Cola, or whatever, or, or just relieve themselves and have a gossip. And that was our that was the 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 light on the horizon. We ran to after we discovered that we were actually finally left alone, tied at the side of the road, and they'd gone. And when I was there, I had uh, my shoelace was still tied around my right hand. I hadn't bothered untying it. And as I was telling the story, and these women were clucking and tutting and ticking and just and crying and, and, and shaking their head saying for shame for shame they steal from us too they steal from the poor it's so bad we're so sorry this happened to you in our country it was profoundly moving and then to add to that this hand came out this black hand came out and untied uh the thing that had been used for my bondage and my white flesh and the whole thing just snowballed in my head everything 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 we've whites have done to that culture and just the whole thing just suddenly smashed in and it was a profoundly moving moment that and and i looked up into this man's face having been scared by the men that were there initially because could they be part of the gang because obviously everybody and especially because we had our head to the ground and our our eyes our eyes averted from their face because they didn't want us to if you identify them it's you're far more likely target for a killing um, so you, you, you practice hard at not witnessing what's going on. And um, to be able to look into a black man's face in in the night in South Africa and say thank you with tears running down your face as he takes away this final sort of token, I guess, of, of the night's um, the trauma. It was That was wonderful. And I, that was a huge part of the healing. And I wrote to him soon afterwards to explain that to him. And um, he understood exactly what I meant.
0: Well, I I really appreciate you taking the time to be on our show, Benedict. It was was really nice to talk to you. It's an absolute pleasure. I hope that was all right. Benedict Cumberbatch is the star of Sherlock. Both seasons of the show are available on DVD, and you can now stream them online via Netflix and Amazon Instant. You can also catch him as John Harrison in the upcoming film Star Trek Into Darkness, and as the voice of the dragon Smaug in the upcoming second installment of The Hobbit Trilogy. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Craig Finn is the frontman of the Brooklyn based band The Hold Steady. They've been critically lauded for their albums over the past eight years, in no small part due to Finn's lyrics. He's known for incredibly detailed, dense storytelling in his music, lyrics that weave together allusions to literary characters, religion, and popular culture. Finn released his first solo album, Clear Heart, Full Eyes, in
1: 2012. You be held to half the things you told them. The you that you, and the that you slept. moving through the bars and slowly stalking. Them.
0: As a kid in Minneapolis, Finn was hooked on the unpredictable music of the punk band The Replacements. He ran out to get their album Let It Be when he was in 8th grade and discovered what was soon to be his favorite song, I Will Dare. 1984, when the record came
1: out. Um, putting the needle down and, and, and hearing the first song, I Will Dare, is that, you know, shambling and, and romantic. That bass line, it sort of makes you feel cool when you hear it. I just feel like I get a little spring in my step, like walking down the street on a nice day sounds like, you know. I just really love this sort of upbeatness of of that first song. And the replacements to that point, you never knew it was a mixed bag. ¶¶ Felt positive. It felt like you know uh, that things were possible. It felt like it's almost like you know the skies are clearing. I'm sort of able to focus on the good things rather than the bad things. And fingernails and cigarettes are a lousy dinner. From that song, it's still like one of my favorite lyrics. love the lyric i love you know if you will dare i will dare i mean in in the sense of it being a love song i think it does take some bravery to fall in love and and saying like if you will dare i'll dare if you're ready to go here i'll go here with you i mean the whole album stands out to me just how drunken and obnoxious and belligerent they could be, but then just really vulnerable and sensitive, too. felt like there was both sides of it. was almost like there was the Saturday night, you know, drinking and going out and trying to cause a ruckus, then there's the Sunday morning sort of being hungover and reflective. Up until then, I didn't really think you could be in a rock band. I mean, rock bands were people like Axl Rose or Steven Tyler, you know. They didn't look like people I knew. They were rock stars, and the replacements. Yeah, there was a very human element to them, a very believable quality. I grew up in Minneapolis, so they were a Minneapolis band. It was exciting to know that you know my favorite band was living in my town. So it kind of pointed the idea that you know you're going to get by 13 or 14. Sometime you're going to be 23 and 24, and you're going to be able to do what you want. And if you want to be in a rock band look cool and sit on a roof and smoke cigarettes, then that was possible. And that's, that was, there's optimism and hope in that.
5: Still
1: my favorite song.
0: Craig Finn on the song that changed his life, The Replacement's I Will Dare. Finn's solo album, Clear Heart, Full Eyes, is out now. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us at twitter.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Errol Morris, who might just be America's most gifted and acclaimed documentarian. His movies include The Fog of War, which won him an Oscar, The Thin Blue Line, which may have saved a man's life, and Gates of Heaven, which, according to the terms of a bet, forced Werner Herzog to eat a shoe live on stage.
2: And uh, you shouldn't worry
4: about it. We cooked it for five hours, but uh, it's still more stiff than before. So I brought, I brought some uh, pair of poultry scissors and some sharp knives.
2: Okay, I think we should uh, let Bernard have the rest of his shoe in peace. Is it getting better or getting worse? Better.
0: I spoke with Errol Morris about the full breadth of his career. It was right around the time that he had completed a movie called Tabloid. The documentary is about a woman named Joyce McKinney. In the 70s, she was charged with abducting a Mormon missionary she had followed to England. Errol Morris and I spoke in 2011. I was thinking of, as I was watching Tabloid, I was thinking about where it stood in these other films that you've made. And, and I was thinking about how committed you are to presenting people, telling their stories, um, in a way that's very interesting in the world of documentaries, I think. Um, that you rarely are, you know, trying to shoot events as they happen, but you're always trying to shoot a person talking about their version of their own experience. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I l-
2: love first person storytelling, putting someone in front of a camera and getting them uh, to tell me their story. Uh, maybe I'm a kind of conceptual vacuum cleaner. Uh, <laughs> Covering up this material, but it is essentially what I do. There are all kinds of interviews. Uh, often I'm asked why I don't do uh, 60 minutes or Mike Wallace type interviews, why I'm not an adversarial interviewer, why I don't back people up against the wall, ask the difficult, embarrassing question, try to trap them in contradictions. Why I don't do that, to me, the name of the game is to discovering something about other people, uh, how they imagine themselves, how they describe their own experiences. Um, So it's the opposite of Mike Wallace, if you like. It's creating a situation where people feel free to tell me stuff. It's preserving those ambiguities, those contradictions, not between the interviewer and the person being interviewed, but inherent in the story itself. And I am a kind of nutso journalist. I don't know how else to describe myself. You seek the truth. You have to, on some level.
0: Some of your films have been about going for the truth. I mean, I think, for example, The Thin Blue Line, which was, about an actual real-life murder and uh, convicted killers who were eventually released. uh, There was a guy sentenced to
2: death for the murder of a Dallas police officer, and I investigated and found out he didn't do it. It was a terrible miscarriage of justice. But at the heart of the story, you want to answer a very simple kind of question. Did he do it? Was he the guy who shot the cop? Was it somebody else? And if it was somebody else, who was it? And I got the real killer to confess. This is the end of my movie, The Thin Blue Line. Yes, there's a factual question.
0: At the center of that. Correct. But on the other hand, like I I was thinking of a lot of, you know, like your early movies, like, like Vernon, Florida, um, which I actually, I want to, I want to play a, a clip from Vernon, Florida. This is just one of the uh, many unusual residents that you encountered in this town. He's talking about the way our minds work uh, in his own um, amazing way.
5: You ever seen a man's brains? Oh, I've seen them. I take them up, scoop them up, put them in, do, do them up like brains. You're buying brains. But there's a bowl right here, and there's a bowl here. Bowl here and a bowl there. Now they're connected to the spine. The spine goes down the backbone. And uh, if all four of these uh, bowls are brains, if all four of them is functioning, you can. You're not a one-track mind. You're a four-track mind. And you can. You can. I see a lot of folks. They can type. One letter, uh, write me a letter, you a letter, on the type machine, and writing on one way with this hand, and write your letter with this hand, and my letter with this.
0: But that is like a description. That film is about... I don't feel like it's about, like, an absolute, like, trying to get to truth. And I wasn't even sure that Tabloid was about trying to get to truth. It felt like it was. it was more about the the truth at the center of it was a totally subjective personal truth on the part of the people who are telling the story no matter how like bizarre and and not so they may be to some extent
2: there's stories where y- you can get at the truth maybe you don't know it at first but you persist and eventually something shakes out of In the case of the Thin Blue Line, over two years of investigating, uh, here you're absolutely right, but we're limited. For example, uh, Joyce McKinney came over to England with a gang of accomplices, uh, Smith & Wesson handcuffs, (laughs) a bottle of chloroform. An actual bottle of chloroform. An actual bottle of chloroform? A fake gun? Now there's a question. Her love object, the man that she was totally obsessed with, the man she had to have, did she kidnap him? Well, clearly she was prepared to kidnap him, but did she really (laughs) kidnap him?
0: She had the gear necessary.
2: She had the necessary gear, yes. She had purchased a kidnapping but kit. But did she do it? And it's the limits of perhaps what we can know and what we can't know. Uh, there were three people present. One's dead, can't interview him. The object of Joyce's obsessive love isn't going to speak to me. So what do you do? You have the outlines of a story that perhaps can't be entirely nailed down. You may never know. There's a mystery. This movie is filled with ongoing mysteries about motivations, about what really happened, about who these people really are. But one thing is clear, at least I hope it's clear, it's for real. Uh, It's proof that there is nothing stranger than reality. You could never do this in fiction. It's just too damn crazy. No one would believe it.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the documentarian Errol Morris. His films include The Fog of War, The Thin Blue Line, and most recently, Tabloid. His most recent book is nonfiction, titled A Wilderness of Error, The Trials of Jeffrey McDonald. I want to ask you about uh, uh, something kind of goofy, which is, uh uh-oh, you're... your career and your reputation have been built on your uh, amazing documentary films. Um, But a significant part of how you earn your living is directing commercials, um, like a lot of uh, independent film directors. And you've created some really remarkable commercials. And there's one series that I I remember when when you opened a website and had your, uh, you had some some of your work in like a real a commercial reel on the website or something like that. Still do. I I saw the clips and thought, oh, Errol Morris directed those. That's why they were like that. And that is this this campaign for Miller High Life. Yes. Um, I, I'm going to play the uh, the audio of one of these commercials called Olive Loaf. Temptation tells you to have that olive loaf fresh
2: from the pack. But you know a finger can break through the surface of stiff, cold meat, either popping out the olives or resulting in tears that can offend your sense of craftsmanship. Yes, better to let that lunch meat breathe. You know the reward for your patience. It's called living the high life. I sometimes think my movies will be completely forgotten. No one will watch them. No one will know about them. But what will survive, ultimately, is my Miller High Life commercials. (laughs) (laughs) They're really, really good. The writing is extraordinary. I got to... Work. We call uh, them the Jeffs, Jeff Kling, Jeff Salis, Jeff Williams. Uh, it was Errol in the Jeffs uh, that created over 150 Miller High Life commercials. And we often wonder, how is it that they let us do this? <laughs> and I think there's a simple answer no one was really watching no one really cared and by the time they did care we'd already done a lot of remarkable work i'm very very proud of them and i tell jeff Kling, who wrote olive loaf among many of these uh, commercials that he might have written the greatest line since shakespeare a commercial about miller high life and duct tape The voiceover is the high life man knows that if the pharaohs had duct tape, the Sphinx would still have a nose. (laughs) (laughs) It's very, very good writing. Mm -hmm.
0: I I like to um, listen to this uh, public radio show out of uh, Los Angeles, out of KCRW here in Los Angeles called uh, The Treatment, hosted by Elvis Mitchell. And he interviews a lot of filmmakers. Sure, I've been on it. Yeah, it's a a really wonderful program, Um, and he's a brilliant interviewer. Uh, But I often think that they should have like like the equivalent of a swear jar for when a feature filmmaker says, I really think of myself as a storyteller um because at this point i think you get like 8 out of 10 of the guests on the show will have a part where they say oh i think of myself as a storyteller yes but uh, this your new movie how, tabloid, about, how about this i
2: think of myself as a failed storyteller
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, the your new movie tabloid isn't just telling a story um it, essentially it's a story about storytelling
2: uh-oh. See now I'm going to lose whatever audience I got from this show. It's gone now.
0: People who are like, "Oh, I remember those Miller High Life commercials. Those were great." Now you've done it. <laughs> but it is. And I know that you like you sub- you uh you have openly discussed subscribing to tabloids and Wait a minute.
2: I openly subscribe to tabloids. I love tabloids.
0: Yes. And uh, tabloids are about storytelling above all else. They're, depending on the tabloid, they have varying degrees of uh, grounding in the truth. Um,
2: Simplified storytelling. Storytelling almost in the abstract. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but the tabloid idea is, if you can't hook somebody in four, five, six words, game over. Uh, You gotta work fast, you have to be succinct. You might call tabloid storytelling, uh, storytelling at ground zero. It's the essence of it. Uh, I do something a little bit different. I hope I'm not confessing to something that's going to get me into trouble. Uh, it's really as you described. I'm very much interested in how stories are constructed. Uh, I, I like tabloid stories, but I also like s- sneaking a peek behind the curtain of looking at how tabloid stories come to be, how they're manufactured. Um, uh, It's a way of giving us a perspective on narrative, on stories, on the relationship between... And this is one of my themes. It's certainly something that interests me, the relationship between stories and the truth. Do stories blind us to the truth? Do they help us see the truth? Uh, Do we really need stories in order to... I mean, what would life be without them? How would we ever navigate the chaos of reality without some way of taking all
0: of these crazy experiences and details and making sense of them? Errol Morris is a documentarian. His most recent film is tabloid. His most recent book is titled A Wilderness of Error, The Trials of Jeffrey MacDonald. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's The Outshot. I have a big old poster in my house. It's for Curtis Mayfield's record label, Curtone. And it's basically just Curtis's face beaming under a big floppy hat. When my son was born, I took the poster out of my office and I put it up next to his crib. He's still not old enough to understand who Mayfield was or why I'd choose a stranger's face to watch over him when he's sleeping. But there's something so kind in Curtis's eyes that I don't think it even matters, really. He can just bathe in that kindness. That's how I feel when I listen to People Get Ready, probably the greatest song that Mayfield ever wrote for his group, The Impressions. Like, I have a direct line to this man in his remarkable reservoir of kindness and trust and faith.
5: People get ready There's a train a-coming You don't need
4: no baggage You just get on
2: Thank
0: the Lord. In 1965, when the success of the civil rights struggle was anything but assured and times were hard and dark, Mayfield sat down and wrote a pop song about faith. People get ready as a gospel song, really. But the gospel isn't exactly theological. It's about approaching even the darkest and most terrifying problems with an open heart. Facing down challenges with faith. Not just in Jesus or God, but in love and decency. Faith that if you join others in doing what's right, the world will change around you. And here's the thing about the song, here's the thing I want my son to know about meeting the world with an open heart. You don't need no ticket. You just get on board. That's my amps. <laughs>
2: Pity on those whose chances grow up For there's no hand in place Against the kingdom So can...
0: That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our interstitial music provided by Dan Waller. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud, where you can share your favorite segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation.